You're listening to the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M, and on today's episode, we have UFC Vegas 73, Dern versus Hill, which takes place this upcoming Saturday from the UFC Apex in Las Vegas, Nevada, with a UFC strawweight main event between top 15 contenders in the submission ace and multiple-time Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion in the number 8-ranked Mackenzie Dern, taking on the number 14-ranked Muay Thai Phenom in the overkill Angela Hill, or should I say Angela Overkill Hill. And then in the co-main event of the evening, you have a battle in the middleweight division between rising contenders, a prospect who fell off but got back on track with a win over Dolce Lungambula via knockout in the golden boy, Edmund Shabazian, taking on a man who's known as a striker but has showcased phenomenal Brazilian jiu-jitsu, even submitting a multiple-time Brazilian jiu-jitsu world champion in Rodolfo Vieira and Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right. So we're going to be doing things a little bit different. Normally, I'll pick five to six fights and break down those on the card, and I'll spend a lot more time breaking those fights down. We're not doing that today. We're breaking down every single fight on the entire card. This could be a shorter episode because I'm not going to be breaking down the technical side as much because we have like 13 fights to cover, but I'm going to still give you the technical analysis, obviously, and how I see the fights playing out, but we're going to break down every single fight on the card. Now, a lot of things have happened. UFC 289 got announced. UFC two, or I'm sorry, UFC 291 got announced. And I could spend all day talking about that card. Pereira versus Blahovich in the light heavyweight division. I think Pereira knocks him out. And I think that it's funny that that fight got announced because the last guy to beat Adesanya before Pereira was Blahovich. So if Pereira goes in and knocks out the former light heavyweight champion in Blahovich, yes, he's probably going to get a light heavyweight title shot. But at the same time, it's going to be another like F you or fuck you to Israel Adesanya because He's beating a guy who beat him. And if he finishes Blahovich, then I just think that's crazy. The main event, five rounds, Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier. Phenomenal fight. A rematch back from, I think it was 2019. It was either 2018 or 2019 where Poirier finished him in the fourth round via TKO in a back-and-forth fight. But Poirier had more volume and the body shots were better. I think it's going to be a much different fight now. And I think if I had to look back from the first fight till now and see who really was the more improved fighter, I think that that's Justin Gaethje. I think Gaethje has improved a lot more. I think that Poirier might have is obviously, well, not might have, but he's going to have the better grappling. But I think on the feet, the footwork improvements, the movement, the counterability of Gaethje, his improvements in the jab, I actually think he knocks Poirier out. I don't think the fight goes that long. And I think when I look at the more improved fighters from then till now, I would say that Gaethje has improved better. I think his his footwork, his movement, his range management, the use of his jab, his head movement, I think everything that Gaethje does has gotten better. I think Poirier has improved as a fighter 100%. I don't think there's any way you could dis- dispute that. But I also think Poirier's game has kind of been the same for the last few years. And he's, and he's able to win because his game is so sharp. His boxing is so sharp, his uppercuts and hooks, his use of the shoulder roll, or the, I like to call it the Drac, the Dracula's Cape guard where he'll kind of George Foreman it cover. And then high guard, come back straight, left, right hook, left uppercut, right hook to the body, jab, right hook, right uppercut, manipulating the guard, ripping to the body, good front kicks. But I think Gaethje's the more improved fighter. 
And in a fight that's for the quote-unquote BMF championship, I think Gaethje is going to out-technique Poirier, and I think he's going to catch him and knock him out in the second round. I mean, I'm not going to give full-on predictions on that card just yet, but I do see the fight playing out where Poirier uh, gets knocked out by Justin Gaethje. And then, I mean, we'll look at just some more fights on the main card. Uh, Paulo Costa versus Ikram Alaskarov. Now, I picked Alaskarov to knock out Phil Hawes, except I didn't break that fight down on the podcast, so you don't have to believe me if you want, but I did have some bets on Ikram Alaskarov against Phil Hawes. The only guy, or according to Chemayev, this was Chemayev's toughest fight, and he beats Phil Hawes. Now he's going against Paulo Costa. That is a huge jump up in competition, but it's also a showcase of how much faith the UFC brass has in a guy like Alaskarov to give him Apollo Costa. I think the original plan was Costa versus Chemayev. Obviously, some things are going on with Chemayev, and that fight didn't happen. So I could see a world where maybe Chemayev is going to get the fight against Adesanya at UFC 293 in Sydney. And I know people are going to say, well, you have Robert Whitaker versus Drikus Duplessis, and then the winner of that would get the title shot. I do think that that's probably what's going to happen. But look at the facts that Chemayev's out. I don't think he's injured. He might have some things going on. I know Dana said he has some things going on, but then Chemayev said that that's not true. If Chemayev isn't injured and they gave Costa the Alaskarov fight, which I do not think is an easy fight for him, by the way, uh, I think the more realistic standpoint and the thing you have to look at is are they going to give Chemayev the title shot against Izzy in Sydney? And I kind of think that's what they're going to do. I know people think the winner of Duplessis and Adesanya, or Duplessis and um, Whitaker gets a title shot. I think if Whitaker wins that fight, he still doesn't get another title shot because are you really going to go up against Izzy for a third time when you lost the first two, even though the second one was a lot closer? I don't think that's what they're doing. I think they're waiting and hoping that Shemaev will fight Adesanya. But I also think there is a possibility that Shemaev fights Usman. Which fight would I want to see more? I'd rather see the Usman and Shemaev fight. I think that's a better fight. I think that's... um. I, I just think that's a better fight. I would rather see that, but I kind of have a feeling they're keeping Shemayev on the back burner to give him a shot at Izzy at 293. Um, Tony Ferguson versus Bobby Green. Both came up around the same time, both OGs of the game. This is a great fight. Um, I just don't have any faith in Tony Ferguson, to be honest. I think Bobby Green's going to box his face off. I think Bobby Green actually TKOs Tony Ferguson at this point. You see the personal issues that have been going on with Tony Ferguson as of late. And he's had a lot of issues with his personal life, uh, DUI, you know, a lot of things like that. And I think that really is a showcase of the damage that he's taken in all of these MMA fights. And more importantly, the damage he's taken lately. I mean, losing, I think, five his last five fights in a row, he loses to Benil Darius, Charles Oliveira, Justin Gaethje, uh, Nate Diaz. And then he was going to fight Li Jingliang at UFC 279, but, you know, the whole thing with Chemayev missing weight, and then it was going to be Chemayev versus Diaz. They did Diaz versus Ferguson, Chemayev versus Holland. You know, I don't really have to touch on that again. But I don't really have any faith in Tony Ferguson as a contender, not even as a contender, but even against anybody into the top 15 or close to the top 15. And I know he did decent against Michael Chandler early in the fight until he got knocked out. I picked Chandler to win by knockout in that fight, but Ferguson did have me worried a little bit. He looked okay against Nate Diaz for the majority of the fight, but he still looked slow. He still looked gun-shy. His defense was terrible, and I think Bobby Green's going to be a lot faster. His boxing is going to be a lot slicker, and I think he's going to piece up Tony Ferguson and get a late TKO. Um, if if Bobby Green is not a huge favorite, even though I expect him to be a massive favorite, if he's 
Anywhere under minus 200, bet on Bobby Green. The minute that line comes out, if it's anything under 200, under minus 200, under a 2-1, to one, take Bobby Green because I think he finishes Tony Ferguson, and I really don't have faith in Ferguson at all. And another fight, Michael Chiesa coming back to the UFC, taking on Kevin Trailblazer Holland in the opener of the main card. Um, this is a really solid fight, but I do favor Kevin Holland. I think the striking on the feet is just going to be way too much for Kiesa. Kiesa does have really solid jiu-jitsu, great uh, wrestling, but I also think that Holland's takedown defense, his ability to work his way back up to the feet, it's all gotten so much better. He's been active. He's been improving. I think he finishes Michael Kiesa, but I do think that there is a possibility Kiesa does implement that grappling and heavy jiu-jitsu top pressure and submission ability to potentially take the back of Kevin Holland and submit him. But at the end of the day, I think Kevin Holland wins. So if I'm going to give early picks, even though I just broke this card down, I think we get Gaethje, Pereira. Uh, Costa and Alaskarov is tough, man. I, I, I'll go Alaskarov, man. I'm going to go on the wild side. So I'll go Gaethje, Pereira, Ikram Alaskarov, Bobby Green, and Kevin Holland. Those are the quick picks for that card. But let's get into UFC Vegas 73, and we're going to kick it off with the first fight because, like I said, we're breaking down every fight on the card. We're going to talk about the fight in the welterweight division between Takashi Sato and Themba Gorimbo. Um, looking at this fight, I was always a pretty big fan of Takashi Sato. He's a, he's a southpaw, and he mainly relies on his boxing. He's going to be very heavy, or very light on the feet, I should say, in and out, using a lot of lateral movement. He's going to be pumping out that jab, and he's going to be looking to land the straight left hand. He's going to be looking to land the straight left, looking to land the overhand left, looking to land the left uppercut. All the power shots that you could think of from that rear left side being the southpaw is what Takashi Sato is going to be looking to attack against Dembo Garimbo. Now, Garimbo got submitted by A.J. Fletcher in the UFC. But before that, he had Fetch, uh, A.J. Fletcher in some big problems. I mean, he was going for leg locks. He was working from the bottom, looking to set up a triangle, looking to set up an arm bar. He's very active off of his back, but he's also not afraid to stay on the feet and strike. I feel like Demba Garimbo is better at range. He's going to be able to use those teeth kicks, the lead left kicks to the body, the high kicks, um, front kicks to the body. Like It's going to be a lot of lead side weapons. He's got a good one too. Jab left hook right hand. Good left body kick, left high kick, teeth kicks down the middle. If the fight stays at range or kicking range, I should say, I think that Themba Garimbo can piece up Takashi Sato and, you know, point fight his way to a victory. I think on the ground, we've seen Takashi Sato have some trouble against high-level grapplers like a Gunnar Nelson. Now, is Gunnar Nelson the, the same caliber grappler as Themba Garimbo, or should I say, is Themba Garimbo the same caliber grappler as a Gunnar Nelson. I don't think he's as strong, but I do think he has similar submission ability. I know we haven't seen much of him in the UFC, but I think if the fight does get to the mat, I expect Garimbo to be able to take the back of Takashi Sato and lock up a rear naked choke, potentially get a triangle from the bottom. I think he's the much better grappler, and I think if Garimbo really wants to win this fight, then he will really resort to that grappling. And then when he's on the feet, he's going to stay at kicking range and stay out of the boxing range to be able to use those teeth kicks, the high kicks, the body kicks, the switch kicks, you know, the inside and outside low kicks, the jab left hook, double jab right hand. And he's going to be using that to then get Takashi Sato to pressure because he only really relies on his boxing and the big power that he has and then change levels and get the takedown. I like Takashi Sato. However, I'm not going to pick him in this matchup. I'm going to go with Themba Garimbo to defeat Takashi Sato via a submission. I think I like, look, I like Takashi Sato. I wouldn't re necessarily recommend betting on this fight. Um, I do like Sato as a as a person, not, not as a person. I like Sato as a fighter. I like his ability to use that lateral movement, use the in and out movement. He's got good boxing. 
good check hooks, good overhands, good straight punches, but he's just not active enough for me. And the grappling inefficiencies, I have to go with Themba Garimbo. So give me Themba Garimbo to defeat Takashi Sato in the opening bout via a second round triangle choke submission. All right, up next. I mean, like I said, we're moving fast. The women's flyweight bout between a highly touted prospect and Natalia Silva taking on Victoria Leonardo. The, Natalia Silva comes in 14-5-1. Victoria Leonardo, nine victories, five losses. Man, this is the lamb being led to the slaughter. Natalia Silva is a phenomenal fighter. She's got very good lateral movement, good angle steps, good pivots. She's so good moving backwards, and she's very hard to trap. Her defense on the feet isn't the best in terms of a high guard head movement. She likes to keep her hands down a lot. And even when she throws her punches, the jab, the right hand, the left hook, the one, two, left hook, the left hook, right hand. A lot of the times when she throws her shots, she keeps her head on the center line and keeps her chin up in the air. Now, if she's going up against a really technical fighter with a lot of power, I think that can give her some trouble. But I don't think Victoria Leonardo is that type of person. Victoria Leonardo does have some okay power. She has decent counters off of her back foot. But for the most part, she's a lot slower. I mean, the speed advantage for Natalia Silva is going to be astronomical in this fight. Then Natalia Silva can land five, six punches by the time Leonardo lands one or two. And I think that's really what you have to look at. She's going to be the better grappler. She's going to be the faster fighter. She's going to have the bigger finishing upside. I mean, we saw her finish, I believe it was her last fight, with a spinning back kick off of a level change from the opponent. Dropped her and finished her. She's got good uh, inside low kicks to high kicks. She can two-touch where she taps the leg and then comes up top to the head. Good teep kicks, good elbows, good knees, good lateral movement. Like I said, her footwork, her check hooks. Her one-twos down the middle, the combination she puts together. She also has good throws from inside the clinch. So even if Leonardo tries to tie her up and resort to the grappling because she might be the stronger fighter inside the clinch, I think she'll get hip-tossed. I think she'll get uh, judo-tossed, taken to the ground, and potentially submitted. I don't expect this fight to go the distance, but with women's fights, you always have to be careful. But I am on a side with Natalia Silva. I mean, she's like a minus 800, minus 1,000 favorite, and she's that big of a favorite for a reason. I think this girl has a lot to offer this division. I think she's the, the future of the flyweight division, and I think she'll showcase another impressive and dominant win here via finish. Um, I'm going to go with Natalia Silva to defeat Victoria Leonardo via a second-round TKO. I think she's going to catch her with some good shots to the body, some high kicks. I mean, her defense on the side of Leonardo is not that great either. She's slow. Her defense isn't that great. And the speed, technical advantage, the violence that Natalia Silva has, you know, the variety of weapons and the Brazilian jiu-jitsu that she can fall back on with good submissions, good arm bars, good hip tosses. I mean, I think she finishes her. So give me Natalia Silva via second round TKO over Victoria Leonardo. If you're looking to bet this fight, I mean, I think Silva's a good parlay piece, but I honestly like the Silva inside the distance or the under two and a half at a minus 130. I think under two and a half is minus 135. But again, with unders, you got to be careful. But if you're looking to bet Silva, I think she does get it, get uh, Leonardo out of there inside the distance. So I would say to look for the under two and a half. But give me Natalia Silva, second round TKO. Up next in the lightweight division, you have the New England Cartel member in Nick Fiore coming back for his second fight in the UFC after that decision loss to Mateus Rebecki, taking on a guy who a lot of people had a ton of faith in, in Chase the Dream Hooper. I believe that's his nickname. If I'm wrong, then you can correct me. 
But Chase Hooper versus Nick Fiore, I see a lot of people riding with Chase Hooper here, and I have no idea why. I'm not saying it's not a close fight. I'm not saying Chase Hooper's striking hasn't gotten better. I'm not saying Chase Hooper doesn't have great jujitsu, good work off of his back, good triangles, good arm bars, good rear naked chokes, good scrambles. He does. However, Nick Fiore is known for his jujitsu, and people are going to look at this fight and say, well, Nick Fiore hasn't fought the best competition. His record was padded, you know, and that, that might be true. But going into his first fight in the UFC, he took the uh, Mateus Rebecki fight on short notice, and Rebecki's a monster. Mateus Rebecki was pushing forward, taking him down, landing big shots, landing shots in the clinch, shots to the body, good kicks to the inside and outside of the leg, really solid boxing ability, and Nick Fiore stayed in there. Yes, he got taken down. Yes, he got controlled from the top position against Rebecki, but the striking on the feet, I think, is going to be where most of this fight plays out because I expect the grappling and jujitsu of Fiore and Hooper to kind of cancel each other out because Nick Fiore, I believe, is a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's known for his grappling, his submission ability, but his striking has gotten better. And coming out of the New England cartel, you're going to expect a really solid jab, good ability to step in and out of range, good ability to manipulate the opponent's guard, landing elbows over the top when the opponent crashes in, really good jabs, jab, jab. One twos, rear elbows, lead elbows, up elbows. And I think the boxing and uh, elbow ability of Nick Fiore is going to be too much for Chase Hooper. I mean, you saw what happened with Chase Hooper against Steve Garcia. He got dropped like four times in the first minute of the first round. Now, would I do I think Nick Fiore has the same striking as Steve Garcia? No, I don't. Do I think he has the same power as Steve Garcia? No, I don't. But I do think that the jiu-jitsu between Fiore and Hooper is going to be a lot closer than people believe. And I think the only way that Hooper wins this fight is via submission. And I don't see him submitting Fiore. And I don't see him controlling Fiore for the majority of the fight. I think the fight will mainly play out on the feet. But in the scrambles, I think Fiore can get the upper hand. He can threaten Chase Hooper with some submissions and make Hooper a little bit less comfortable in attacking with the bread and butter of his game, which is the submission attempts, the jiu-jitsu, and things like that. I think Nick Fiore keeps it on the feet, uses that jab to dictate the pace, and I think the jab is going to be a little bit too much for Chase Hooper, who does not have the greatest durability. I expect a lot of jabs, a lot of rear elbows, lead up elbows, one-twos down the middle, and I think Fiore's going to come in with a lot more confidence in this fight, and I actually think he finishes Chase Hooper. So give me Nick Fiore. Yeah, I believe he opened as a slight dog, and now... Um, he's, he's become the favorite because people have put some money on him, but give me Nick Fiore to defeat Chase Hooper via second round TKO. I could see him even locking up a submission after he hurts Hooper on the feet, but I think the jab is going to be too much for Hooper to get past. I think the jab is going to be in the face of Hooper for the majority of the fight from the start to the finish. He's going to be timing the level changes in the club, the closure of the pocket from Hooper and the pressure with the rear elbows, the lead up elbows. I think he's going to be working the body with some decent hooks. So that if Hooper tries to level change, he'll be closer to the to the level that Hooper's now going to be on if he works the body, and it'll be easier for him to stuff the takedowns. And like I said, he has the black belt in jiu-jitsu to fall back on. So I like Fiore in this matchup. I see a lot of people putting some money on Chase Hooper. I would never bet Chase Hooper at this point because I don't think he's shown you anything to really have a ton of upside on at this point with the durability issues and with the terrible striking offense and defense. So give me Nick Fiore to defeat Chase Hooper via second round TKO, potentially a second round submission, but I do think he gets Hooper out of there. All right, up next is going to be a heavyweight fight between Alir Latifi and Rodrigo Nascimento. Look, I don't even really want to spend a ton of time on this fight. 
And I know a lot of people might be heavy on Alir Latifi because he is a huge guy. I mean, he's huge for this division. He's got really solid clinch work, good takedowns, good top pressure, good submission ability. But a lot of the game of Alir Latifi comes from the grappling, closures of the distance, putting the opponent up against the cage, looking to get the takedowns, working from the top position. And it's more control than it is damage from Latifi. I think a lot of people look at Latifi and expect him to be this huge knockout artist, great ground and pound, you know, just this huge monster. That's not really what he is. He likes to really win these fights based off getting in your face, getting in the clinch, using his strength advantage, taking you down inside and outside trips, double legs, pushing you against the cage and dragging you out into a war. Now, not dragging you out into a war, but just sucking the life out of you, draining your energy and things like that. With Rodrigo Nascimento, he has good jujitsu. He has good grappling in his own right, but he also has good striking and he can stay in the fire if he's getting pushed back if he's getting beat up like he was getting pieced up by Alain Bado, which doesn't look great but then he came back in the second round and finished him after a terrible first round so even if Alir Latifi comes in here and is going to push back Rodrigo Nascimento land some big shots because he does have power close the distance push him against the cage work some knees elbows inside the clinch take him down work from the top position I think Rodrigo Nascimento has a better jiu-jitsu game I think he's better off of his back, but I think if the fight does stay on the feet, even though Nascimento isn't the best striker, I think he's a lot more technical than Alir Latifi. He's got good jabs, good one-twos, good inside and outside low kicks, good shot selection with his boxing. He's mainly a boxer than he is a kickboxer on the feet, but he can hurt you. I mean, you saw it against Badeau. He's got good shots, over the hand right, left hook, uppercut, big power in some of his punches, and they're pretty technical. I would expect him to be the better striker. I think the better wrestler is Alir Latifi, but I could see Nascimento locking up a sub from the bottom. If Alir Latifi is able to push back Nascimento, get in the top position and wear him out and just win the rounds based off control in the wrestling, then I do think that Alir Latifi does have a path to victory. But I can't side with him because I think the more well-rounded fighter is Rodrigo Nascimento. He has better boxing. He has better footwork and range management on the feet, and he doesn't have to rely on his grappling and jujitsu and his wrestling to win him the fight, where with Latifi, I feel like he has to. He has to rely on the wrestling, has to rely on closing the distance, has to rely on getting in the top position and getting you out of there. With Nascimento, he can keep it on the feet. He can stay technical. He can, you know, weather the barrage, weather the storm, and come back and put the pressure on a guy in Latifi who is going to get tired, who is going to slow down. I expect Rodrigo Nascimento to get or um, to win this fight via decision. I could see him potentially finishing Alir Latifi because he can slow him down the longer the fight goes. But Alir Latifi had a lot of trouble with the speed and striking of. Tanner Bozer. And although I think Bozer is more technical than Nascimento, I think Nascimento has more power than Bozer being a natural heavyweight. And I think he's got good technical, good technical boxing and better technique than Alir Latifi on the feet to be able to keep it at the distance, be able to stop some of the wrestling, slow down Latifi and eventually box his way to a decision using his defensive wrestling, potentially locking up a submission if Latifi shoots a bad takedown. But give me Rodrigo Nascimento to defeat Alir Latifi via a second round uh, guillotine choke submission. I think he's going to time the level change of Latifi, grab his neck, and get a sub. So Rodrigo Nascimento, actually, you know what? Forget it. No, 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 no. No, I'm not going to go with a sub. I know I said it, but forget it. Let's go Rodrigo Nascimento by unanimous decision. I could see him subbing Latifi, but I, I think Latifi's tough. Like he's not going to just quit on himself. So give me Rodrigo Nascimento to just outwork outstrike Latifi on the feet, stop the majority of the wrestling, uses good jujitsu if he does get taken down to work his way back up to the feet 
and win a decision. So Rodrigo Nascimento to defeat Alir Latifi via 29-28 unanimous decision. All right, up next is going to be a fight in the welterweight division between tor former tough finalist in Gilbert Urbina versus Orion Kosey, um, or Orion Kose. I think that this fight is pretty close, and this is a fight on the card where if you're looking to bet, I would stay away from this on either side. Um, I think Orion Kose has not really impressed me at all, and I'm not, I'm not discrediting him. I'm not saying he's not good at what he does, but his striking offense and defense is just completely lacking, at least in my opinion. He likes to push the pace. He likes to get in your face, push you up against the cage, go for the un over-under positions in the clinch, look to get to the body lock, look to get a hip toss, look to take you to the ground, work from side control, pass to mount, get to half guard, look to land some elbows, look to lock up a head and arm choke, look to get your back, flatten you out, land ground and pound, look to submit you. The majority of Orion Kosi's game is getting in on your hips, taking you down, out wrestling you, controlling you up against the cage, trying to make you, you know, suck wind, trying to drain your cardio, drain your gas tank, really just use his strength to hold you up against the cage, get those takedowns, and then eventually tire you out to get a ground and pound finish or a submission. Um, the thing is, in the UFC, that type of game plan, unless you're one of the best grapplers in the world, isn't really going to work. With Gilbert Urbina, he has great jujitsu, great submission ability, great ability to take your back. He can even take your back standing and lock up a rear naked choke. He can work from the top position, look for arm triangles, look for triangle chokes. He's always going to be looking to take the back of his opponents. And I think he will be able to get out of those positions up against the cage. I do think Kosei is going to be stronger. So if the strength is too much, then maybe Kosei can just hold him there, tire him out, you know, make him will under the pressure and eventually open Urbina up for a sub. But I think the pressure on the feet of Urbina is a lot better than Kosei when it comes to the striking. I think he has a lot better variety when it comes to the striking. He's a better pressure fighter. He's better on the front foot than Kosi. Kosi is better on the front foot with the wrestling, but nowhere near better on the front foot with the striking. This is a striker versus grappler matchup, but this is also a matchup where the striker is going to have grappling to be able to fend off the attacks of the heavy grappler on the mat if it does hit the floor. The better wrestler is Kosi, but the better jiu-jitsu artist, the better scrambler is Gilbert Urbina, and who has the better striking? Gilbert Urbina. Who's going to have more pressure on the feet? Gilbert Urbina. Who's going to have better overall offense on the feet? Gilbert Urbina. I mean, you look at the fight with Orion Kosi and Phil Phil Rowe. I'm a big Phil Rowe guy. I picked him to beat uh, Nico Price by knockout. I think Orion Kosi was doing well. He was pushing him back against the cage, got some takedowns, but he got tired. And then once Phil Rowe was able to strike at distance, he was piecing him up. Kosi is not the most durable, even against Blood Diamond who has shown to really not be much of anything in the UFC, at least at this point. Um, he was winning the fight easily by taking him down, pushing him against the cage, holding him up against the fence, using some shots in the over-under position, looking to use some hip tosses, working from side control, getting to the mount, things like that. But the minute they broke off, he, you know, Blood Diamond was landing a cross into a same-side head kick, a spinning back elbow, a spinning back fist. And he was landing big shots in the clinch. And Blood Diamond wasn't even throwing technical shots. He was kind of windmilling. He was overthrowing. He was throwing wild. And against Gilbert Urbina, even though Urbina has not fought in a very long time, I believe the last time he fought was the Ultimate Fighter finale back in 2021. I think it was 2021. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Urbina's going to have that pressure. Urbina's going to come forward. Even with the layoff, I think he beats Kosi. I think he pushes him back. 
I think he lands some big shots on the feet, some good uppercuts from inside the clinch, some good one-twos, pushes Kosi back, is able to really get Kosi tired by defending his takedown attempts, defending the, the heavy grappling up against the cage. And I don't see Kosi being able to control Urbina up against the fence for 15 minutes. And I think eventually the pace pressure, the striking of Urbina paired with the phenomenal jujitsu and the submission attempts is going to lead Urbina to getting a finish late in the fight. So I'm going to go with Gilbert Urbina to win this fight via a third round club and sub. I think he's going to eventually tire him out, land some big shots on the feet. He's going to hurt him. Kosi's going to shoot a bad shot. He's going to sprawl it, take the guillotine and get him out of there. So give me Gilbert Urbina to defeat Orion Kose via a third-round club-and-sub guillotine choke submission. All right, up next is going to be the prelim headliner in the women's strawweight division between a former strawweight title challenger on a win streak for the first time in a long time in her career on a two-fight win streak, I should say, in Karolina Kovalkiewicz going up against Vanessa Lil Monster Demopoulos. I think this fight is very close. Uh, I, I, I'm a little worried about this fight in terms of Carolina finally kind of putting things together. Her grappling looks a lot better than it has in recent past, or I'm sorry, in the past. She's gotten better at defending some grappling transitions. She's gotten better at landing big shots on the feet. She's got good straight punches. And Carolina Kovalkiewicz is a fighter who's known for blitzing. She'll blitz forward with three, four, five, six punch combinations, straight punches. You know, she's good inside the clinch. We've seen her showcase a very solid clinch game to clinch game when she defeated Rose Namajunas back in, I think, 2017, around 2017, somewhere around there with good clinch work, knees to the body, elbows. And I think a lot of people forget that Karolina Kovalkiewicz has a win over Rose Namajunas. Now, I think if they fought at this point, Rose Namajunas would destroy her, but that, that's a different story. She still has that win. She went back and forth with Joanna Jacek when Joanna was the champion at the first UFC event in Madison Square Garden. And she's gotten better in recent memory, but she still has trouble with heavy grapplers, heavy submission artists, and she finds ways for opponents to get her on the floor, get in the top position, either take her back and get a rear naked choke, take the arm, get an arm bar. She's not the best at jujitsu. She's gotten better at using her jujitsu and wrestling and submission game offensively, like we saw against, I believe it was Lupita Godinez, or uh, yeah, I think it was Lupita Godinez. Maybe I'm wrong, but she was able to use her grappling and heavy pressure. You know, oh no, I think it was uh, Silvana Juarez Gomez, not uh, Lupita Godinez. My bad. But Carolina Kovalkiewicz has gotten better. She's going to be the better striker than Vanessa Demopoulos, but Demes Vanessa Demopoulos is going to have the bigger power. We've seen her drop girls in her UFC career. We've seen her land big overhands, big hooks, and she has power to drop opponents. I think Carolina Kovalkiewicz is durable, but you do have to look at the durability as a little bit of a question mark where if she gets hit by a big shot from Little Monster, will Little Monster put her down and then work on the top position? Her bread and butter in this fight is going to be the wrestling. It's going to be the submission attempts. It's going to be the grappling. But Vanessa Demopoulos got dropped by Silvana Juarez Gomez in her, I think it was her UFC debut. It was definitely Gomez's UFC debut. She got caught with a big overhand, dropped, rocked, is, is basically out on her back, out, done, finished. She jumps on her, goes for the finish, but then Demopoulos is able to lock up the armbar from the bottom, keep hold of it, 
use the sweep by grabbing the backside of the leg and then getting the armbar submission. So even if she gets hurt, she still finds a way to work her submission game. And I think the jujitsu of Vanessa Demopoulos is just going to be way too much for Carolina. I think if she keeps it on the feet, there is a possibility that Carolina will outstrike her, keep it at a distance, land better kicks, land better, better multi-shot combinations, blitzing, blitzing combos, three, four, five, six punches, or uh, punctuating the combinations with high kicks. But for the majority of this fight and the way I see it playing out, I think Vanessa is going to be a lot stronger. She's going to be a lot more technical with the way she gets the fight down to the floor. And once it hits the mat, it's the little monster's world all day. I think Vanessa Demopoulos finds a way to get in on the hips of Carolina, takes her down, ground and pounds her. She gives up her back and she locks up a rear naked choke submission. Um, I think it could be an arm bar, but I'm going to go rear naked choke. I think Carolina will give her neck up and get it, and then Vanessa Demopoulos will get the sub. So give me Vanessa, Lil Monster, Demopoulos to defeat Carolina Kovalkiewicz via first-round rear naked choke submission. This is close on the money line. I think Demopoulos is like a plus 100. I think Demopoulos is a dog or Demopoulos inside the distance, which I think is plus money, is the best way to attack this fight from a betting perspective. But I'm pretty confident in the Little Monster to get the job done here against the former strawweight title challenger. I'd like to see Carolina go on a win streak, but I just think the little monster is going to eat her up this week. So give me Vanessa, little monster Demopolis to be the better grappler, the better wrestler, and the better fighter from the top position, working on the hips, get her down to the floor, get in the top position, take her back, and get the sub. Vanessa Demopolis, first round rear naked choke submission. All right, now we move to the main card. With the main card opener in the lightweight division between Mahashate and Vicheslav Slavaklaus Borschev. Somebody said it was the Chinese machete versus the Russian Santa Claus. I think that's pretty funny. I like that little, you know, backstory on the fight. But this is going to be a great striking matchup. There's not going to be much grappling from anybody. If there is some grappling used in this fight, I think it would more come from the slide side of Vicheslav Borschev. Mahashate is a great fighter, but he had a lot of trouble with Hafa Garcia. He was getting pressured. Hafa Garcia was landing big shots, and we saw that the defense of Mahashate is not the best. He has good footwork, good lateral movement, good ability to change direction between left and right as he's moving laterally, and he loves to use that rear side angle. I've talked about that multiple times on the podcast before, using the rear side angle where he's going to step off to that rear side and find the opening to either come over the top of the opponent's jab if they're in the same stance or come over their cross if they're in the opposite stance. But he loves using that rear side angle. When he gets in close, he loves elbows over the top, knees inside the clinch, and he has very solid knees to the body, and then front kicks up the middle. I think if he's smart in this fight against Vicheslav Borzchev, he's going to be using a more kicking-heavy game than getting into the boxing range against Borzchev. I think Borzchev is the much cleaner boxer. He has good lateral movement as well, good pivots, good angle steps, but he's a, his ability to counter moving backwards is very solid. You saw in the Contender Series, he caught Chris Duncan, who I actually picked in his last fight in the UFC. He caught him with a back step left hook as Chris Duncan was pressuring, he was moving backwards, cut an angle, bang, left hook, dropped him, finished him off. He knocked out Dakota Bush with a big body shot, a one-two, right hook to the body, ripped the liver shot, dropped him, and got him out of there. But the biggest area we've seen Vicheslav Borschev struggle with is in the grappling. But I don't expect Mahashate to use his grappling. Now, if he comes into this fight with a smart game plan, then maybe he'll be using the wrestling, using the takedowns. But I don't see that. And on the feet, I think Vicheslav Borschev's a lot sharper. And I think the biggest difference in this fight is the defense of Borschev. I think the power is uh, pretty neck and neck from either side. I would give the speed advantage to Vicheslav Borschev, but I give the technical advantage in terms of offense and defense to 
Vyacheslav Borshchev. Now, if you look at the reach in this fight, I think Mahashate has a bigger reach. Uh, yeah, two and a half inch reach advantage for Mahashate, and he's going to be at a one inch height advantage. But that reach is what he's going to want to use. He's going to want to keep Borshchev back, landing front kicks to the body, landing front kicks up top to the head if he tries to change the level. Because Borshchev's so heavy with that boxing style, he keeps a primarily high guard. So if he keeps that high guard, maybe you'll see Mahashate attack, attack the inside and outside low kicks and then feint it and come up the middle with a front kick to the chin, a front kick to the body, a front push kick, and he's going to be looking to land shots up the middle, uppercuts, hooks. But the counters, whether it's moving forward or moving backwards, of Vyacheslav Borshchev are a lot cleaner than Mahashate. And Mahashate was getting timed by um he was getting timed by Hafa Garcia. He was getting caught with big shots the longer the fight went. The cardio was slowing down. I think Vyacheslav Borshchev, we've seen him have issues with his cardio, but it was mainly in the grappling aspects of the fight. I do not think that Mahashate is going to be looking to grapple. And you could say the same thing about the Mahashate and Hafa Garcia fight, that the reason that he got tired was because of the grappling. And it was, but it was also because he was landing the bigger shots. He was outboxing the better kickboxer in Mahashate. Hafa Garcia was landing big shots to the body, straights, overhands, one-twos down the middle, check hooks, ripping to the body. He was landing so many solid shots the longer the fight went, and we saw Mahashate get tired. Now, he's got beautiful backstep counters, a beautiful right hand, beautiful backstep straight punches, and yes, he can catch Vyacheslav and hurt him and put him out, but I think Vyacheslav Borshchev's head movement, his ability to work the body, his ability to land the jabs and crosses and switch stances and just work a better all better overall striking game on the feet. I think his backstep counters, his footwork, his head movement, his ability to move his head while he's moving laterally and come back on the counter, whether it's moving forward or backstepping like we talked about. I think Vyacheslav Borshchev is the more technical fighter, and I think the biggest difference in this fight is that he's more defensively responsible than Mahashate with getting his head off the center line. We never really see Mahashate move his head. A lot of the time, he's angle-stepping. He's switch 45-ing, switching his stances to square up the hips of the opponent, moving laterally, angle-stepping, left-right, left-right. He doesn't really move his head. A lot of the movement, which it is a good, strong aspect of Mahashate's game, is with his footwork, lateral movement, and range control. But the head movement of Vyacheslav Borshchev, the counter boxing, the good hooks, the good uppercuts, he can work the body. He can come forward with a 6-3, He's going to be able to outbox Mahashate. And I think the defensive irresponsibility is going to cost Mahashate in this fight. But this fight is very close. And I wouldn't necessarily say to bet either side because it's going to be a mainly striking matchup between two dangerous strikers and the power is pretty neck and neck but I think the technical edge of Vyacheslav Borshchev and being the overall cleaner striker with the better technical defense is going to be what carries him to a win in this fight so give me Vyacheslav Borshchev to defeat Mahashate via um ooh, do I go with a finish yeah I'll go with a finish uh eh I could see a decision. Let me think. Give me a second. Do, 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 do. Um, you know what? Yeah, give me Vyacheslav Borshchev via second round body shot TKO. I think he's going to work up top to the head, hurt him a few times, but he's going to rip to the body up against the cage, drop him, and get him out of there. So give me Vyacheslav Slava Claus Borshchev, the Russian, Slava, Russian Santa Claus, to defeat Mahashate, the Chinese machete, via a second round body shot TKO.
All right, up next, we move to the one of my favorite fights on the card. I'm going to be honest with it. Diego Ferreira versus Michael the Menace Johnson. I think a lot of people are going to come in here and think that Johnson's just completely washed up. He doesn't have anything left. He's his record is terrible. He's like 23 and 18 or 22 and 18. And people are going to forget that Michael Johnson has fought the best of the best for his entire career. And Michael Johnson is going to be a lot cleaner on the feet and a lot faster than Diego Ferreira. That's what you guys have to look at. The speed advantage of Michael Johnson in this fight is going to be astronomical. He is going to be so much faster than Diego Ferreira. If you go back and watch Diego Ferreira's fight against Mateus Gamrot, Mateus Gamrot was so much faster and so much better with the lateral movement, better with the angles than Diego Ferreira to the point where he really couldn't catch him with anything on the feet. He was walking into shots. He was getting pieced up off the back foot counters of what's it called, of Mateus Gamrot. And in the grappling, yes, I do think that Diego Ferreira is the better grappler. He has better wrestling. He has the better jujitsu, the better submission attempts. But the, the takedown defense and the takedown reaction time, the reactionary defense of Michael Johnson is second to none. And even with all these losses he's taken and how much he's slowed down at certain points in his career, he's still got some of the best takedown defense, if not the best takedown defense in MMA. He, he hurt and stunned Habib Nurmagomedov back at UFC 205. You know, he's should technically be on a three or four fight win streak. Let's see. So he lost the decision to Clay Guida, which didn't look good. But then he came back in 2022. He beat Mark Jacasey in his last fight, December 2022, via decision. And he was winning that fight pretty convincingly. He lost the first round, but the second and the third, the, the striking, the speed of the punches, the one-twos, the three-twos, the uppercuts into the hooks. The fight against Jamie Malarkey, I thought Michael Johnson won that fight. He lost it via split decision. I thought he won the first round, even though it was pretty close after Johnson got the knockdown, landed some ground and pound, but then Malarkey came back and got the knockdown as well. I still thought Michael Johnson could have edged out the first round. I thought he lost the second round, and then I thought he easily won the third round. So I thought Johnson should have got the nod there. Before that, he gets that knockout victory over Alain Patrick in the second round, three minutes, 22 seconds into the second round. So in my opinion, Michael Johnson could be on a three-fight win streak and have gone 3-0 in 2022, but he lost that decision to Jamie Malarkey, got the decision over Mark Casey, who's an extremely fast fighter, extremely technical. Yeah, maybe Casey didn't fight to his you know best ability, but Michael Johnson was still catching him. The speed was a problem. The footwork was a problem. The movement was a problem. The only thing with Michael Johnson at this point in his career is that his footwork and movement does slow down the longer the fight goes. When we get to the midpoint in the second round into the third round, he does slow down and tend to take his foot off the gas and become more of a stationary target. And Diego Ferreira does have decent striking. He has decent kicks, but the bread and butter is the takedowns, the grappling, the jiu-jitsu. I think he's a much better jiu-jitsu artist than Michael Johnson, but I don't think he's going to be able to take down Michael Johnson, who, like I said, has some of the best takedown defense in the UFC, especially in the lightweight division. And I think the boxing and the speed of the combinations of Michael Johnson on the feet are going to be so much faster than Diego Ferreira. Ferreira has also not fought in a little while. Let's see. His last fight was in 
December of 2021. So it's been almost two years, a year and a half since we've seen Diego Ferreira inside the cage, but he also has lost, I think his last three or four fights in a row. So he's, his last win came via second round submission over Anthony Pettis in January of 2020. But then in 2021, he dropped fights via knockout to Mateus Gamrot, via TKO to Gregor Gillespie, and then via decision to Benil Dariush. Now, he was close. He was competitive in all those fights, but he is coming off an 0-3 run in 2021, and now he's back after a year-and-a-half layoff. Yes, he's going to be improved. Yes, I think he'll come back a better fighter, but I still think the speed of Michael Johnson, the boxing, the combinations, the uppercuts into the hooks, the 1-2-3, the 1-2-3 uppercut hook, 1-2-3-6-3, I think the combinations, the footwork, and the speed of Michael Johnson is going to be too much for Diego Ferreira. And coming off the, the layoff, I like the underdog here. I like Michael the Menace Johnson. I think his footwork, I think his speed of his boxing, I think the counter ability, I think the fact that he's remained active, especially throughout 2022, and you have a guy coming off a layoff and coming off three back-to-back-to-back defeats, even though they were against some of the highest level competition. Michael Johnson has always fought the highest level competition throughout his career. And I don't know why he's the underdog. Like, I understand why, because you look at his record and you think that he should be. But I'm going to go with the underdog here in Michael Johnson to defeat Diego Ferreira. And I think he's actually going to get him out of there. I think he's going to finish him. I think the speed is going to be too much for Diego. He's not going to see the shots coming. And he's going to catch him like he did Jamie Malarkey, but he's going to get him out of there. So give me Michael the Menace Johnson to defeat Diego Ferreira via second round knockout. He's just going to be way too fast for Ferreira, in my opinion. All right, up next is going to be a battle in the welterweight division between Andre Fialho and Joaquin Numansa Buckley. Buckley dropping down to 170 after competing at 185. Um, lost the decision to Nasruddin Imavov in a very close fight, but lost the first two rounds, played it pretty clearly, came on in the third and clearly won the third round, looking like he was maybe going to finish him if the fight continued. Then he goes and fights Chris Curtis. He's doing great, landing a lot more volume, landing a lot more kicks, landing a lot more combinations. Curtis catches a kick, lands a straight left down the middle, drops him, and then grounds and pound, ground and pounds him for the TKO victory. Now Buckley's coming in at 170 pounds. He said that he was tired of getting knocked out. He's dropping weight. I don't like a drop down in weight for Joaquin Buckley, even though he's not that tall. He's a big, heavy, muscular guy who has already showcased a lot of durability issues. He's going to be at a one-inch height or a two-inch height disadvantage and he's going to have a two-inch reach advantage. Yes, the reach is going to be important because the only way Joaquin Buckley is going to win this fight is by keeping it at kicking range, landing straight left hand, left body kick, uppercut hook. He's, he reminds me a lot of a Mike Tyson in MMA. Joaquin Buckley is like the Mike Tyson of MMA. He likes a lot of bob and weave, slip, bob and weave counters, roll, hook to the body, uppercut, hook to the head, one, two, three, roll, two, three, rear low kick, Bomb, 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 roll, bomb, 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 roll, slip, slip, roll. He loves to use the footwork and head movement. He loves to use a bob and weave style, coming back on counters or landing big combinations with a lot of power and then rolling underneath. Yes, he got that spinning back kick to the face knockout after the caught, after the caught kick against Impa Kasanganai. Yes, that looks great for Joaquin Buckley, and that's fine. Yes, he got the knockout over Elbert Duraev. Yes, he was beating Chris Curtis until he got knocked out. Yes, he won the last round against Nasruddin Imavov. Yeah, I think Buckley is good, but I don't think he's as good as people are giving him credit for. And I think Fialo is not a better kicker than Buckley. He's not faster than Buckley. I think if he keeps it at kicking range, Buckley runs away with this fight. But I think if this fight stays in boxing range, Fialo's jab, his left hook, his rear uppercut, 
his jab left hook rear uppercut, his uppercut left hook, his backstep counter left hook, his check hook. His boxing is going to be dangerous for Joaquin Buckley, extremely dangerous. If he keeps it at kicking range and is able to use a kickboxing approach and maybe resort to the wrestling and get some takedowns against Fialio, then yes, I think Buckley can win. I think Buckley, if he if he keeps, keeps it at the kicking range, is able to outkick him, outstrike him from the kickboxing range, land good body kicks, good head kicks, then pair that with the boxing combinations. Yes, I think he can win by outvoluming, potentially getting Fialio out of there. However, if he stays in the boxing range, I think he gets caught. And Fialio's so good with the counters that I think Buckley is so reckless at points where he'll just run in without any form of defense. Yes, he has good footwork. Yes, he has good angle steps. Yes, he uses good L steps to get off the center line and move laterally left and right. Yes, he has good movement. But when he explodes, he rushes in with big multi-shot combinations. And against a guy who's as good of a counter striker as Fialio, I know he's kind of been on a rough patch lately, but I think Fialio's boxing his left hook his rear uppercut, though Jab, is going to be able to catch Buckley stepping in, kind of like Chris Curtis, where he could catch a kick, land a big shot, and drop him. But I think he's going to catch him stepping in on a big shot and a big combination, land that left hook, drop Buckley, and get him out of there. And with the weight cut, yes, I know he says he was tired of getting knocked out, but with the weight cut, we've seen it many times before, not a lot of people can do it if they're big, bulky, muscular guys. I know that Buckley's not that tall, but he is a big, heavy, muscle, muscular guy with a lot of muscle. And dropping down to 170 after being at 185, I think is going to affect the durability. Even if he feels better, it's going to affect his chin. And against a heavy knockout artist who's as technical with the boxing as Fialyu, I have to go with Andre Fialyu here. Um, I'm going to go with Andre Fialyu to win via first-round knockout. I think he catches Buckley stepping in on a big multi-shot combination as he lunges forward, catches him with that backstep left hook drops him, and gets him out of there. So give me Andre Fialyu to defeat Joaquin Buckley via first-round knockout. All right, up next we have a catchweight bout between Emily Ducote and Lupi Godinez. Um, this is a catchweight fight. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here. Look, I think Emily Ducote versus Lupi Godinez is a 50-50 fight. I don't really see any areas where either fighter is going to be superior like by that much of a margin I think it's very slight margins for either fighter and I know some people are expecting Lupi Godinez to come in here and completely dominate Emily Ducote and you know she's gonna walk through her we saw against Angela Hill Ducote got pieced up barely did anything and then with Lupi Godinez she went back and forth it was a very close fight and uh, she lost that fight via decision I believe let me check Um, yeah, she lost via unanimous decision, came back and won a split decision against Cynthia Calvillo. Even getting a split a split decision against Cynthia Calvillo. Calvillo's never been the highest level competition, in my opinion, and she's never been that great of a technical fighter, or at least that great of a fighter from a technical side, I should say. So for people to come in here and completely be outright on the side of Godinez and erase Emily Ducote, that's fine, but I don't think that's the right way to look at it. Ducote has good boxing. She's got very good lateral movement. She doesn't over move. She doesn't circle too much left or right. It's very small steps, very, very minimal circling, 
left and right. She likes to move her head a lot. She'll move it forward, left and right. She's always watching. She's got very good eyes. Against Godinez, I think that's going to be a little bit of an issue for Godinez. Godinez is going to have more volume. She's going to have more power. She's going to be the more active fighter. But Ducote, I believe, has better boxing. I think Ducote has better left body shots. If she works inside, lands a left hook to the body, the left hook up top, the one-two. She has good technical boxing. It's just people look at that Angela Hill fight and see how Angela Hill was just piecing her up and she wasn't really allowing Ducote to do anything. And Ducote was kind of, you know, like a deer in headlights the entire fight and they're completely writing her off. But when Ducote, Ducote let it go, when she lets it go, she has good low kicks, good inside kicks, outside kicks, good calf kicks, good left shots to the body, good uppercuts, good one-twos, good backstep counters. Godinez is good as well. I think Godinez has more volume. Godinez has more power. I would say that, uh, Godinez probably has the better jujitsu and submissions, but Ducote fought against Jessica Penne and Penne was not able to get any takedowns. So that is something that you have to look at. And then you look at Godinez. She lost a split decision to Jessica Penne, did Lupi Godinez. I think Lupi is the better fighter, but when you look at the tail of the tape, when you look at the MMA math, which doesn't always work, I think this fight is a lot closer. Um, I could see Godinez losing this fight, and I that's why I can't believe there's so many people who are heavy on Lupi Godinez. Yes, she has more power. Yes, she's more active. Yes, she's going to push the pace more. Yes, she had a closer fight with Angela Hill, but she lost a split decision to Jessica Penne, and Emily Ducote beat Jessica Penne and didn't even allow her to get takedowns. So the MMA math kind of cancels out on that one. I think this is 50-50. I think this is a flip of a coin. I wouldn't bet on this fight at all. I don't like to bet on women's MMA in general. This is definitely one I would not bet on. But I am going to side with Emily Ducote, which maybe isn't the best pick, but I'm going to stick with my gut here, and I'm going to say that Ducote is able to actually outbox Lupita Godinez. And I think Godinez might have the better overall game, but I don't think she gets takedowns. I think we see Ducote show up here. I think she uses some good low kicks, good boxing, and lands better combinations with cleaner technique on the feet. So give me Emily Ducote to defeat Lupi Godinez via a 29-28 split decision. Up next, we move to the co-main event of the evening in the middleweight division. I wish this was the main event, but it's not. Edmund, the golden boy, Shabazian versus Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. Hernandez is coming in on a three-fight win streak. Hasn't lost since 2020, I believe. Or, uh, yeah, I think it was 2020. Let's see. Let's see. Da, da, da. Yes, his last loss was May of 2020. He's on a three-fight win streak with that come-from-behind upset submission victory over Rodolfo Vieira, and then that unanimous decision victory over Josh Fremd at UFC 273, and then the arm triangle choke submission against Mark andre Burial at UFC Fight Night 210. Um you know, Fluffy Hernandez is going to have the better jiu-jitsu than Edmund Shabazi, and he's going to have the better grappling, 100%. Going to have the better wrestling, going to be able to get Edmund Shabazi down to the floor and work his superior top control, top game, ground and pound, and good jiu-jitsu. But he's no slouch on the feet either. Anthony Fluffy Hernandez can strike. He's got good pressure. He's got good one-twos, good straight punches, good uppercuts, good elbows and knees inside the clinch. But I don't think that he's going to want to stay on the feet with an Edmund Shabazian. Shabazian, even though, yeah, his last win came over Dolce Lungiambola, he was able to get the knockout in that fight. Before that, he lost to a lot of high-level guys. He lost to a Derek Brunson. Um, lost to some other guys as well. Here, let me pull it up. Uh, 
I know one was Nazardine and Mavov at be a TKO. Let's see. 12 and 3 overall, Anthony Hernandez, 10 and 2. So 22 and 5 as an overall combined professional MMA record. But he lost to Derek Brunson via TKO. Jack Hermanson via decision, who was just able to outpace him, outpressure him, outgrapple him, outwrestle him, and then lost to Nazardine Amavov via second. Excuse me, via second round TKO. But the grappling of Edmund looked decent in the first round of that fight against Nasruddin Amavov. His defensive grappling, his scrambling ability did look better than it originally had. But against Anthony Fluffy Hernandez, who's going to be on the pressure, who's going to be getting in your face, who's going to be looking for takedowns, who's going to be looking to get you to the floor, going to be looking to land big power shots, land big elbows, big ground and pound hammer fist, and look to submit you. I think this is a very tough matchup for Edmund. Yes, if Edmund keeps it on the feet and can keep it at kicking range, keep it just outside of boxing range, and then land big punches, big uppercuts, you know, the one-two, backstep, two-three, the one-two, left hook, right high kick, the two into the lead head kick like he caught Brad Tavares with, the jab, jab to the body, faint jab, one-two. He's got the much better striking, the much cleaner striking. And if Anthony Fluffy Hernandez can't close the distance, yes, I think Edmund Shabazian could knock him out. He could get him out of there in the first round. But for the majority of this fight, I think it's going to be the story of the pressure, the forward pressure, the clinch work, the knees, the grappling, the takedowns, the relentless submission attempts of Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. I think over time in the second and in the third round, the pressure, the grappling, the submission attempts are going to slow down Edmund Shabazian. You've seen with Fluffy Hernandez, he'll go for five, six, seven, eight, nine submission attempts around until he eventually slows you down and he gets it. He can scramble. He can grapple. He's going to be able to outscramble Edmund. He's going to be able to outwork him when it comes to the grappling but it's the striking on the feet where Fluffy might get caught. He might get caught with a big head kick, might get caught with a big one-two, might get caught with some good jabs, let's set up a big power shot from Edmund. That can put down Fluffy Hernandez. The first round is going to be the most telling in this fight because I think the only way Edmund gets Fluffy out of there is if he catches him cold in the first round with a big shot, either a big head kick or a big right hand, drops him and gets him out of there. But the longer the fight goes, like I said, it's going to be the forward pressure. It's going to be the takedowns. It's going to be the dirty boxing, making this fight dirty for Anthony Hernandez. He loves to go for that. Uh, I call it the backside control. You can call it the referee's position. The backside control Armin guillotine attempt where he reaches around to the opposite side, throws the shin across the belly, throws the opposite foot to the opposite hip to stop for the pass to half guard, and then gets the arm in guillotine choke submission. That's his best submission. If he doesn't get that, he can transition it to an anaconda choke if he flips you over on your side and then connects to the, the hand to the bicep and goes there. But I do think the pace and pressure of Anthony Fluffy Hernandez is going to be able to slow down Edmund Shabazian. It is going to make him wilt the longer the fight goes. I think he's going to be able to land some bigger shots on the feet. He's eventually going to be able to get the takedowns easier in the second round, land some good ground and pound. And I think Edmund Shabazian gets submitted in round two. I know he beat Dolce Lungiambola. I know he looked good, but a win over Dolce Lungiambola isn't that impressive to me. So give me Anthony Fluffy Hernandez to come in as the pretty sizable favorite and defeat Edmund Shabazian via second round club and sub. Second round a uh, guillotine choke submission for Anthony Fluffy Hernandez. But this is a great fight. I kind of wish this was the main event, but alas, it's not. And then we get to the main event of the evening, the strawweight fight, five rounds, 
in the main event between the number eight ranked Mackenzie Dern versus the number 14 ranked Angela Hill. Look, this is striker versus grappler 100%. And this, this breakdown doesn't really have to be that extensive. Mackenzie Dern is going to be looking to close the distance, get inside the clinch against Angela Hill, either pull guard and look to set up leg locks or arm bars, or take her down, get her up against the cage, work from the top position, look to get to the S mount, look to work the arm bars, look to take the back and work from an arm bar off the back. The, the thing with Mackenzie Dern is she's pretty much an arm bar or bust. I believe she's got some leg locks in her career as well, but a lot of the bread and butter for Mackenzie Dern is to look for the mount, get to the mount, get to the S mount, and look to set up the arm bar, isolate the arm, or look to take the back, fall off to one side, and set up the arm bar. Mackenzie Dern on the feet is nowhere near a match for Angela Hill, but Angela Hill is nowhere near a match for Mackenzie Dern when the fight hits the mat. And that's what you have to look at. If Angela Hill keeps this on the feet, she outstrikes Mackenzie Dern and probably finishes her, but she did survive with Yan Jaonan on the feet. So, you know, take that as you will. Maybe Mackenzie Dern can survive here. But Angela Hill on the feet, she's got such better striking. I mean, it's night and day. Good elbows, good front kicks, good front kicks to the face, teeth kicks, elbows, uppercuts, one twos, one two lead high kick, good low kicks, good body kicks, really solid Muay Thai jabs, elbows, up elbows, uppercuts, knees, teeps. Knees to the body, high kicks, body kicks. I mean, she can do just about anything. Good jabs, good one-twos, and she has heavy volume. She's going to outstrike Mackenzie Dern 100%. If they give you more significant strikes landed in the fight and you can do like a same-game parlay, I would take Angela Hill to land the most significant strikes, Mackenzie Dern to land the most takedowns, and then uh, Angela Hill to score at least one knockdown in this fight. I'm not so sure on the knockdown, but I think that is a decent way to play it. But Mackenzie Dern getting Angela Hill down to the floor, I think that's going to be a problem. Like eventually, if she does get in on the hips, if she does take her down, she will be able to submit her. Because Angela Hill, every time she does get out-wrestled, out-grappled by a superior grappler, even if she doesn't lose the fight, for the majority of those fights, she will lose the round. She'll give up positions, and she's not that great at working her way back up to the feet. If she does get taken down, she'll either settle for position and then wait for the next round or wait for the ref to stand him up. Like, she doesn't have the greatest get-up game. She doesn't have the best submissions off of her back. She doesn't have the best kickoff game where she can kick off on the hips. She doesn't have the best tactical get-up where she can scoot to a hip, kind of shrimp her way out, and then stand up using the opposite hand for the base. I mean, Angela Hill is not a good grappler, but at the same time, Mackenzie Dern striking is rudimentary at best. Big looping overhands, uppercuts, straight punches, kind of, you know, moving forward, closing the distance with her head, which against a superior striker can leave her to getting hurt and finished by Angela Hill. Angela Hill's record 15 and 12. Like that record is terrible, but it's very unassuming. Like you wouldn't expect Angela Hill to be as high level of a fighter as she is with a record like that. But a lot of those 12 losses were losses via split decisions. Like she was a, she could have won a lot of the fights that she ended up losing. Some of the fights she won, she could have ended up losing because they were so neck and neck. You know, Angela Hill's never going to really strive ahead and, and really make it a clear cut victory for herself. She always fights to a close decision. Mackenzie Dern. She can win decisions as well, but if this fight goes to decision, I think it 100% goes to the side of Angela Hill. Mackenzie Dern has to get in on the hips, take down Angela Hill, either with a double leg, a single leg, get her inside the clinch, pull her back into the full guard, um, work to maybe set up an Imanari roll, and then transition up to the back. You know, Imanari, grab the legs, work her way up, jump on the back on the feet, something like that. Um, Mackenzie Dern's going to be the much, much superior jujitsu artist. Angela Hill 
the much, much better striker. So if Angela Hill can keep it on the feet and stuff the takedowns, she'll outstrike Mackenzie Dern, potentially get a finish, but more than likely win that fight via decision. If Mackenzie Dern's going to win this fight, she's going to be able to close the distance on Angela Hill or allow her to make a mistake, maybe throwing a sloppy kick, close the distance, get a takedown, work from the top position, take her back, get to the full mount, and eventually work for a submission or land some big ground and pound, which opens up Angela Hill for a submission. I am going to side with Mackenzie Dern here to be able to get an armbar submission, though, against Angela Hill. I think with the, the grappling inefficiencies that we've seen against it, with Angela Hill, I should say, not against Angela Hill, but the grappling inefficiencies that we've seen from Angela Hill throughout her MMA career. Yes, we've seen you know, people be able to survive her grappling and really outstrike her on the feet. This could look very similar to the Yan Zhao Nan fight where Mackenzie Dern can't get the takedown. She's pushed off. She's fought. She's fighting on the outside. And, you know, Angela Hill's just piecing her up on the feet, outstriking her, landing 200 more plus, 150 plus more significant strikes. And, you know, just being able to pick her apart on the feet. I definitely think that's something that we could see here. But I think eventually Dern gets the takedown, gets her to the floor and locks up a submission. I'm going to go with Mackenzie Dern to win via second round armbar submission against Angela Hill. I just don't like the inefficiencies we've seen from Angela Hill. Not so much with the takedown defense, but once she gets taken down, she doesn't have much to offer her opponents off of her back. And against a multiple-time jiu-jitsu world champion, yes, I know we saw Yan Zhao Nan survive, but we also just saw Yan Zhao Nan knock out Jessica Andrade in the first round. So that doesn't look that terrible because it looks like Yan Zhao Nan will get the next title shot or potentially a fight against Rose Namajunas for her next fight. So um, I'm going to go with Mackenzie Dern to get the sub. I just think she's so much better of a grappler. And although her striking isn't that great, the, the grappling of Angela Hill isn't that great either. And I think she's going to be able to find her way to a position on the floor where she gets to the mount and locks up the arm bar. So Mackenzie Dern to defeat Angela over Kill Hill via a second round arm bar submission. And that's it for my UFC Vegas 73 UFC fight night Dern versus Hill preview predictions and breakdown. You can get this podcast anywhere you get your audio podcast. That includes Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, and many, many more. This podcast will most likely be uploaded to my YouTube channel, which is the same name as the podcast at the Touch Em Up Podcast. I'm your host, Double M. I'm out. Enjoy the fights this weekend.